Hello, and welcome to the Don't Get Mad podcast, where we fearlessly attempt to discuss important, difficult topics without losing our minds, our tempers, or our dignity. On this show, we're not neutral, but we do commit to being reasonable, civil, and genuinely interested in refining our own ideas, as well as influencing others. We don't stoke outrage, we don't call people names, we don't question motives, and we make a sincere attempt to understand people who see things differently than we do. Welcome, everyone. It's the evening of Thursday, March 17th. It has been about three weeks since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, and the Russian military so far has shown itself to be the consummate bully. Everywhere they've encountered Ukrainian soldiers, the Russians have been beaten. Their ground advances have stalled on every front. However, they have had great success shelling and bombing civilians. They've been able to do that very well. Several Ukrainian cities have been devastated, and more than three million refugees have already left Ukraine. Surely there are many more people uh, who have been forced out of their homes but have yet to leave the country. So it has been a humanitarian disaster, an unfolding humanitarian disaster. But this appears to be the primary Russian tactic at this point, just to cause as much suffering as possible and hope that the Ukrainians give up to make the pain stop. The Russians can't seem to win a fair fight, so they're fighting dirty. President Zelensky just addressed the U.S. Congress and asked us to enforce a no-fly zone. So the question, should we do that? What do you think, Steve? Well, I'll tell you what been wrestling with this one ever since we talked about the uh, invasion last week. I, you may remember at the time I said that I didn't think the U.S. would ever put boots on the ground in uh, Ukraine, primarily because Biden said that during his State of the Union. And also, to be candid, because America has, notwithstanding Iraq and the Iraqi war, uh, America has this kind of non-interventionist thing going on unless there's some kind of a direct impact on us economically or uh, you know like if 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 Ukraine was providing 20% of our oil reserves or Russia was providing 20% of our oil then we'd be very much in the interventionist mode we just kind of really get itchy when it comes to things that hit the pocketbook in this case if we go into a no fly zone we wind up putting ourselves potentially in direct conflict with Russian jets, with the Russian military, in which case we are in a de facto war with Russia, in which case we give Vladimir Putin that much more cover to be able to release tactical nukes on the, uh, the battlefield. So to put ourselves into a direct no-fly zone puts us in a very precarious position as far as actually conducting war. Here's the thing. I think Zelensky's right. I think that without a no-fly zone, Russia can keep resupplying, keep going in there, bombarding, doing whatever they want with impunity, because the Ukrainian army is much smaller, not nearly as well uh, stocked, although you can argue that the Russians are pretty much doing a crap job with what they've got. But I think that... Uh, this, this concept of a no-fly zone, although it would definitely help Ukraine defend itself, the fact that Ukraine is not in NATO, is not a signatory, means that we would have to take a long, hard look at whether we want to be in direct conflict with Russia and potentially 
although some would argue that World War III has already started, potentially start World War III. And I think that Putin is just nuts enough and just over the edge enough that he would very likely use tactical nukes, and that would be a major tripping point. You suggested toward the end of that, yeah, that Putin is just nuts enough. There's, there's, there seems to be increasing indication that he is uh, going a little bit over the edge. He gave a statement yesterday about how um, he's going to root out the traitors and uh, something, some sort of imagery about um, spitting them out like flies that have flown into their mouth, into someone's mouth. So I think it's not unreasonable to worry about him using a tactical nuke. What I always like to say is that uh, we don't want to think like liberals, which means that we don't want to make policy decisions based on what feels good or satisfying. Instead, we want to make policy decisions based on what the likely outcomes and the likely effects of those policy decisions would be. It would feel really good to send our fighters over to Ukraine and to shoot down the Russian bombers and to defend the brave Ukrainians. And on the other hand, it feels terrible to sit around and not do that while we watch the Ukrainian cities get bombed. But we ha what we have to consider is what would actually happen, what is likely to happen if we enforced a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone involves, among other things, uh, taking out enemy air defenses, and it would, be, it would involve taking out the Russian air defense systems, which are based in Russia. So it would, it would require American airstrikes on Russian territory, and that is certain to provoke some kind of a response. So if the goal is to help Ukraine... And in the process of doing that, Russia responds by nuking Kiev or uh, by invading other NATO states by basically declaring war on NATO, uh, then that hasn't helped. The goal is to stop humanitarian suffering, is to stop human suffering. And it, it's bad, but in a full-fledged war between Russia and NATO or if a nuke is used in either of those scenarios, of course, the human suffering actually increases. So we have to consider that. And for that well, reason, I think I support what the um, what the Biden administration is uh, suggesting. Well, and, and and take take this one step further. You see a tactical nuke used on Chernobyl or on any of the nuclear reactors. You want to compound that. You want to compound the suffering and create an ecological and humanitarian disaster. That would be certainly one way to do it. And that, I think, is one of the major considerations going on here. There's one little wrinkle, though, in what you said that, and I got to double check this because I heard a military expert earlier this week uh, suggest there are two different perspectives on what a no-fly zone would actually mean, whether that is no-fly over Ukraine or no-fly period into out of. Ukraine. If we were to go with a, a strictly no-fly over Ukraine, yes, we would still be in direct confrontation with Russian assets. However, we would not be targeting into Russia. If we go with a general no-fly zone that covers anything coming in and out of Russia or anything coming in and out of Ukraine, then you're talking about targeting assets in country. The difference is subtle, 
And to be candid, I don't think it makes any difference with Vlad the Impaler. I think he would see either of those things as a direct confrontation with Russia, with the United States. And that would be a um, that would be a real uh, war starter. You know, to, to be a little facetious here, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little uh, cowboy. And this is kind of the opposite. You know, I'm I'm all for military action anytime you got a provocation, any chance we get. I mean, what's the fun of having a military if we don't get to blow stuff up once in a while? The best defense, good offense, freedom is never free, death from above, Geronimo, Banzai. Why am I going that far? <laughs> I'm I'm going that far because I think there's a I think there's a balance in here that we're kind of missing. And there's a there is a reality that we need to confront. You kind of said it when you talked about liberal uh, perspectives and feelings and the like. And I think this is why the United States has a bad rep in the area of uh, interventionist wars. We are very selective. And if you take what happened in the Middle East and you take the Iraqi war, and that's what I will call it because, you know, we can put all the operation, whatever it is, desert freedom, who knows. You put all the names on it you want, but the bottom line is it was war with Iraq. You take a look back at how we got into that war and the bill of goods we were sold, the country was sold to get into that war. Somebody came up with the concept of the term axis of evil, even though you were pitting, you're, you're basically lumping Shia and Sunni Muslims into the same bucket with the North Korean dictatorship, which has absolutely nothing to do with either the other two. Two states that want to kill each other with a third state that's completely, what, how is that an axis of evil? And yet, oh, sorry, huh, guess my tea is done. And how do you, you know, how do you start a war on a, a premise that is completely fallacious? And that was one of them. You look at some of the other areas we've chosen not to intervene in, and you find similar uh, inconsistencies. Now, I'm not going to debate the rightness or wrongness of, of many of them, but I think that's where we get some of our bad rap. And that's why sometimes we look like cowboys, Geronimo, Banzai, going guns blazing. And then we look at a situation like Ukraine and we look weak. And there's one other thing, if I can. Do you mind if I throw one more thing in here? Sure. If Ukraine... <laughs> I'm about to say something incredibly controversial, and I'm sorry, because I really don't want this to be a controversial podcast. I do. That would be fine. If Ukraine was in, if Ukraine was in Central Africa, this wouldn't even register a blip on the radar scope. Um, and that's, and that's a, a, a question that I think we need, as we're wrestling with all these other questions, we are relating to Ukraine, and it is such a big story. Because it is in Eastern Europe. It is a country that we have an enormous population of here in the United States. And to be candid, look like a majority of Americans. Okay, that's... So, um, I'm, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 I'm just rambling at that point. Go ahead. Um, yeah, that's a whole other can of worms, which uh, I definitely had some thoughts on that... 
one of my responses when I was working through the early stages of, of the news about Ukraine and there were a million and a half refugees. And I thought, man, have there ever, is that the most refugees, uh, the largest refugee crisis we've had in our lifetime? And um, somebody very quickly replied to me and said, no, you not know, even in, close. in Syria, there were 5 million. And, uh, you know, that was very recent. And uh, I'm probably leaving out a couple of other situations. But you're right. Um, and so I, you can really work through a lot of reasons why this registers more. This registers more strongly and more emotionally. Yeah, and cynics would say it's because we're, uh, at some level, we have a degree of latent racism. Um, I think there are other answers, and uh, I'm not well, necessarily and- prepared to... T- <laughs> To, well, no, uh, and, and, and to be fair, and I will, I will say this because I would say this regardless of which country this would be, because I've been very consistent on this. I said this at the beginning of the, uh, at the Iraq conflict. I've said this other times. We need to start getting more serious about democracy. If we are saying that we believe in the power of democracy to transform the world and to provide human rights and to provide liberty, if we value this thing called liberty so preciously here in the United States, we hear it all the time. We say it all the time. We say it across the aisle all the time, although the, the, what that means to people on either sides of the aisle is, t- is tinged by their perspective based on where they live and the party and all that. But the truth is, democracy, if we believe that it is transformative and that the right of self-determination, one person, one vote, matters in this world, when we see a democracy or when we see an, a country that has elected a president through what was reasonably a clean process, as Ukraine and the American government did, um, we go after that. We, we, we see that and we see this is a threat because if, you, if Ukraine falls, who is next democratically? Who is the next country? Uh, and, and I think that that's where we are kind of missing this on the global scale because there are other countries where this is going on right now. And that's, that's I think, the big challenge for us in anything we justify or either doing or don't do in Ukraine. And this goes back to my comment. And it was my comment about if Ukraine was in Central Africa is that I think for some people that may be a factor, but I think in me, and others of my ilk, the reason this is so vital is that when one democracy falls, all democracy hurts. And if we can stop this right here, tell the dictator, the murderous dictator, who for years has been pouring talking points all over the U.S. media and getting away with it, And we say, this is enough. Enough is enough. Stop. We're not going to let this keep going. Then I think we're on the the right side of history in that. Now, after we get done with that, we better start taking a look in the mirror and figuring out what the next next situation is that we've got to confront. But I think in this moment, because of the just the Russian brutality, just pure bloodshed, bombing, bombing a maternity hospital that was labeled as such. You you just got to you got to ask yourself. Where does it end? So 
this uh, does lead into the question of, yeah, we have been uh, picking and choosing the theaters in which America's military will intervene. And it's easy to get kind of cynical about that. You said yourself that uh, there are factors like economic considerations. There's also other factors that I think are important and justifiably so. Like, I, I think it's okay that economic interest plays a role because the reality is, and, and a lot of people will say, yeah, we intervened here in this case. Why didn't we intervene in the other 10 places around the world where injustice is going on? And a very short answer to that is we can't intervene everywhere, but we can't use the argument. I'm actually going to quote what Barack Obama said when we uh, intervened in Libya in 2011, I think it was. The, the fact that we can't do everything cannot be a reason for us to do nothing. That if you make an analogy, I mean, you could use the same argument to say that any sort of charitable endeavors are useless because you can't give to every charity, therefore you shouldn't give to any of them, or you can't, you know, help any children, uh, you can't give extra tutoring to any struggling, to every struggling child, so you shouldn't help out any struggling child. And of course, that doesn't make any sense. So when we decide to intervene somewhere, we have to pick and choose based on factors like where we think we can be effective and where the risk is proportionate to the gain, which I think is one difference between, um, there's another situation I mentioned, Libya, where, again, Barack Obama's speech in 2011 justifying our no-fly zone. We established a no-fly zone over Libya uh, during their civil war, basically intervening uh, on the side of the rebels. In, and helping to oust Muammar Gaddafi. And so in that case, we intervened in a civil war. It wasn't even a foreign invasion. It seems like a foreign invasion is, would have more grounds for intervening rather than internal civil war. But of course, there's a very big difference that being, if we're going up against the Libyans, there's very little they can do in response. The difference here is Russia has nuclear weapons. So if we're going up against Russia, I mean, that counts. So you can't go around um, fighting for justice everywhere, regardless of the cost. Well, I, I, I don't like saying that. No, but you know what? I actually agree with that. And, and, and we're on the same page on this because I do think and, and I, I don't take it quite to the point of economics for the moment. But I think after we get back from the break. This is a good topic to pursue, and I know we have a couple of others we want to talk about. So uh, why don't we take a quick break, and we will be back with more on the wonderful topic of where to intervene or not intervene in Ukraine. We'll be back after this.
we're back. Welcome back to the Don't Be Mad podcast. Uh, and when we were uh, finishing up that first segment there, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the fact that we can't go around and be the world's cop, for lack of a better term. We can't go around and fight every battle. And uh, Andy said something that I really feel uh, kind of reflects also where I am, which is you can't discount the fact that there are some costs that are so high that you have to take a step back and figure out if there's another option. That's kind of where I would, how I would phrase that. Um, there are things that we see happening now, like, uh, you know, uh, sanctions that actually have some bite. And a lot of times sanctions are kind of just, you know, window dressing. But uh, yeah, I would agree with what you said, Andy, uh, that, uh, you know, we can't fight every battle. So, and I think that's a good setup here because I think this next topic that we were going to talk about uh, kind of feeds off of that first segment. Okay. So uh, a day or two ago, I saw the following tweet from Candace Owens. She said, uh, in earnest, can someone explain to me why our invasion of Iraq over alleged weapons of mass destruction, which were never found, during which time we slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians, did not result in America being ejected from the global financial world. So she's forming a moral equivalence between our invasion of Iraq and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, this tweet was disappointing to me. Uh, Candace Owens has a decent sized following uh, among, among the right, among the political right. She makes a lot of videos for Prager University. I am actually a fan of Prager University. Uh, you know that Amazon Smile um, program that Amazon has, where a portion of every um, a portion of every purchase you make goes to whatever nonprofit you choose. My beneficiary has been Prager University um, up until. Well, I think I'm going to change that actually because I, this is very upsetting uh, because. Um, this tweet represents kind of the uh, mentality of self-doubt or even self-loathing that has infected elements of both the political left and now also the political right. Uh, there's this thought that's out there that America is no better than our geopolitical opponents, and so we have no right to act abroad. Um, so uh, I'll just say, first of all, I mean, one of the assumptions that she says in the tweet and you see and, and i think it's worth addressing because like i said candace owens has a decent sized following there have been many attempts to uh calculate the civilian casualties during the years we spent in iraq and uh there's something called the iraq body count project which estimated that american and coalition forces killed 13,807 civilians now estimates of civilian casualties go all the way from 100,000 to a million which means nobody really agrees how many civilians died but most sources agree that the primary cause of civilians dying was the iraqis killing each other it was sectarian violence um so in any case it's certain that her numbers are an order of magnitude off slaughtering hundreds of thousands but Okay, um, the question then, in earnest, can we explain why our invasion of Iraq should get a different reaction than uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia's invasion of Ukraine? You looking for that answer? 
<laughs> giving me giving me a softball here, Andy. I think it's a softball, right? I mean, they are very different enterprises, right? Um, yes, yes, they are very different enterprises. Okay, good. Um, and and I would say, and th- by the way, this is speaking as someone who opposed the Iraq War from the very start, for exactly the reasons I outlined earlier. As I was listening to the talking points coming out of the White House at that time, and I said this in my house, and I said this elsewhere. This is not an axis of evil. And if that understanding is flawed, what else is flawed? Are we using data to justify something and that data could be specious? If you can't get that one fundamental thing right, if you have people in your government can't make the the distinction between Shia and Sunni and the hatred they have for each other in in the Middle East, everything else is suspect to me. And so when I started to see the weapons of mass destruction thing come up, and I saw Colin Powell put that out there, and I heard other people talking about it, and the neocons were going after it. The first comment I made was, God help them if there's no weapons of mass destruction. Because by all things I saw, and I was watching the Middle East very closely, he wasn't using them. And this is a guy who had used these things over the span of years. Forget the nuke piece of that, which was always a very hard thing to prove, but just talk chemical weapons. He hadn't been using them. And so the question is, where's the stockpiles? And we just kind of went after it. And we were also hate, we all hated Iraq so much that it just was like a kind of a snowball effect. So is that different than what's going on in Ukraine right now? Oh, an order of magnitude different. And this, this whataboutism, this, this equivocation is absolutely, again, I'm going to use this word again, specious. I don't know why she said what she said. I don't know why she thinks that she has any kind of grounding to stand on there. What's going on in Ukraine is nothing less than a deliberate slaughter and destruction of the entire country. This is indiscriminate. It's not war. That's the thing. War has tactical and strategic objectives. You have a strategic objective to take out a column of armored vehicles. You do not have a strategic objective to take out a maternity hospital. And in the case of Russia, what they are doing in Ukraine is indiscriminate slaughter, unequivocal, indiscriminate slaughter. They do not care. They are propagandizing their targets, saying that the Ukrainians are bombing them themselves, saying that the Ukrainians are you know, somehow hiding weaponry in these things when you can see clearly in news reports that the places they're bombing are packed with people underground. You have to assume that one of the most sophisticated intelligence services in the world, in the Russian government, is not able to tell that there are civilians sitting under there and should, you know, can't tell their generals, hey, by the way, you you see that red building over there that's got like, uh, shelter and children and orphanage painted around it, you might not want to hit that because guess what? That's a violation of the Geneva Convention. It's an act of, it's a war crime. Russia knows exactly what they're doing and they are deliberately and indiscriminately targeting civilians. You take a look at what we did in Iraq. And again, speaking as a person who stood opposed to that war, it was a a waste of precious American lives for a purpose that still to me is dubious because it always felt a little bit like you humiliated my daddy and I'm going to come back and get you. And 
you know, the neocons that that was not Bush's intent, I don't think, but it just kind of had that feel. And when I look at what happened in Iraq, we did not go in there to indiscriminately target civilians. Civilian collateral happened, and I think we could have totally avoided it if we had not gone into that war in the first place. But uh, Saddam Hussein was going to be a threat to the Middle East regardless. He was a, but at the same time, we forget this in history. He was also a bit of a paper tiger by that point. He was not the threat that he once was after the first Gulf War. So uh, to, to, to sort of wrap this up, and I feel like I've kind of gone on a long monologue about this, I absolutely see no, and again, as somebody who opposed it, as somebody who you could easily say, Andy, and you know me, know me now enough, I'm a bit of a peacenik. <laughs> I, do, I do not want to see us just willy-nilly deploy troops around the world because I think it, it, it does give us the wrong, it's a stain on us, when we go in and it makes it look like we're being selective because of economic purposes or, or otherwise, uh, we have to look at these two things as completely different. And that's not to take any blame off of America for entering into a war ill-advisedly, but it is to say that at least in America, we do take some care to not go after civilians. And you know that 13,800 number is way too high shouldn't have been in any of any if we had stayed out of it but at the same time this is not what russia is doing and 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 to, to, for her to say that was just completely it was lunacy and it, it's worth bringing up because i think there that's not the only comment like that that i've seen out there among uh those on sort of the anti-neocon left and also the uh, uh weird sort of fusion of the libertarian and also the Trumpy America First wing of the of the Republican base, uh, basically approving that. So there are many differences, um, and it feels sort of silly to review them. Uh, but I guess people do need to go over at least some of them. Among other things, as you already mentioned, there's a difference between civilians dying in conflict which will inevitably happen and purposefully targeting civilians or even, you know, indiscriminately committing violence without taking precautions. And it sure seemed like when we went into Iraq, uh, we attempted to minimize civilian casualties as we absolutely should. Um, you said you didn't support the war at the time. Um, and I don't know, it, it, and I believe you. But I will say oh, you, you can ask any of my family, I, ask I, any I of my family. They, they, they will tell you that I was uh, right there saying this is not this is not our conflict. This is not our battle. I will fess up and admit that I supported it at the time. What is shocking? Yeah. What is uh, difficult to process a little bit is how it sure seems like if you ask them now, it seems like 80% of America was against that war. When in reality, I, I mean, I forget what the actual vote in the Senate was to approve the use of force. It was something oh, like 98 to two or something. It was, it was Literally. overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in favor. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Bernie Sanders one of them? I think he voted against, I thought he voted yeah. against it. Yeah. Think he, I, I have to go back and check on that, but yeah, you're right. There was, 
There was so much rah, 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 because we had been attacked. Yeah. uh, Clinton and Gore, I know, were in the Senate at the time, and they both uh, voted for it. And popular sentiment was pretty much in favor of it. Um, And, I mean, it it, it was – looking back, you can see how it went bad. But I do believe – and this is another big difference – between what we did then and what Russia's doing now. I mean, our intention was good. Our intention was to plant a democracy in the middle of the, in the center of the Middle East and uh, to kind of start to change that entire region uh, into a place that could function well in the world community and that would be a reliable trading partner and diplomatic partner and, um, Boy, that all of that seems very pie in the sky nonsense at this point because clearly it didn't work, and you sort of wonder why we thought it would work. But at the time, it was a very different. Uh, America was in a very different place. If you recall, we had a budget surplus at the time, and we had just been attacked. So we were, we thought it was very uh, important to root out all these people that hated us, and we had the resources to do it. We weren't. Um, we hadn't been in any big military actions uh, recently, and our, our our economy was on fire. It was doing quite well, and uh, so we had the resources. Until the dot-com bust. Right. So, uh, and then I remember specifically, like I, I already mentioned Libya, when we were considering intervening there, it was a very different time. We had already been chastened by the experience of what had happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, we were, as an economy, and uh, we were, and as a government, we were flat broke. We were in piles of debt and running larger and larger deficits. And we were generally demoralized and uh, not looking for any more fights. And that's why, um, I mean, I think otherwise. Go ahead. There's something to interject here, though, and, and, and specifically with regard to Iraq. Now, I think I think there are several other better examples of interventionism that kind of get to the core of Ukraine. Like, for example, if we take a look at, uh, you know, some of some of the genocides that have gone on and those kind of things where we really the American power structure could have come in and played a role in stopping the 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 slaughter of innocents. But let's go back to Iraq for a moment, because this is the important thing. You you kind of touched on it. This topic of nation building gets thrown around by politicians on both sides of the aisle. We don't want a nation build. We don't want a nation build. And then we did exactly that when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan. Afghanistan, who, by the way, attacked us. Iraq, who did not. We drew links that we kind of suspected. And we just got everybody, rah, 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 we're going to go into the Middle East and we're going to kick some butt, except for the fact it was Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. Now, we know that as a result of the commissions, but at the time it was kind of a PR thing more than it was a fact thing. When you take a look at American interventionism around the world, a lot of times we're reacting, and this, this goes to what you said earlier, with emotion. We are reacting with a collective sense of outrage over something. Iraq, we were attacked. Ukraine, they are a democracy. They are a partner in Eastern Europe. They are a buffer to against Russian expansionism. 
you could you could go all the way back through our history of war, and it's very rarely for a humanitarian purpose of protection. Uh, and it's it really does get to that issue of okay, I hate to put it this way. Whoops, dang it! I gotta stop that thing beeping. What's in it for us? What's in it for us? Uh, as opposed to what's in it for them. Um, that to me is kind of the question that we need to start asking ourselves a little more forcefully. I don't think it'll ever happen. To be candid, human nature being what it is, we're going to get into more wars. We're going to get into more wars that. 10 years afterwards, we're going to go, what the heck were we thinking? You know, Biden pulls us out of Afghanistan and, and arguably was the, just a, short of Saigon. It was a nightmare. Yes, they got a lot of people out. Yes, there were some people left. But, uh, you know, it was 20 years of a slog over there doing what we thought was nation building, but not taking into account, not appreciating the fact that they did not have a strong yearning beyond women wanting democracy. It wasn't like the entire country was ready to go back to battle with the Taliban and say, no, 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 no. You do not run this place anymore. You're going to be ruthless. Sadly, we're going to make sure that you feel that in response. They did not do that. And so we had all the indications, CIA had been reporting, state had been reporting with cables, that that fall was inevitable. And, you know, 20 years into it, we're looking at it going, why didn't it work? Well, it didn't work because we didn't go in recognizing the socio-political and economic struggles of the country. So, um, so I have been attempting to work out a good theory of uh, a good metric or a good standard of when we should intervene militarily. So I'll send this over to the uh, federal government, to the State Department, so that they'll know from now on how to decide whether to intervene uh, with military force. So there's a couple of conditions. Uh, the first is that the cause has to be just. Um, and yeah, there has to be some sort of injustice that we are stopping, some sort of humanitarian suffering or uh, or in, in invading a, a nation violating sovereignty of another nation. Mm -hmm. um, but there are several other factors. So right, being right, being morally right does count. However, it also has to be somewhere that we have an interest, um, whether that interest is economic um, or whether that interest is upholding treaty obligations. Um, or combating uh, geopolitical enemies, and I think that's playing into the role. In, that's playing into Ukraine a little bit. That it's not um, Syrians fighting each other. It's not uh, a civil war in Africa. It's Russia trying to expand their sphere of influence, um, trying to and trying to diminish the uh, NATO sphere of influence. Um, and the injustice being a violation of sovereignty and um, and just a, a violation of the Ukrainians' right of self-determination. It sounds like they want to be a part of NATO or they want to form closer ties to the West. It would be one thing if, you know, Ukraine's neutral and we're both trying to manipulate them. That doesn't seem to be the case. Um, 
There's there's one other. Can I add one? Can I? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I'm not quite. I got one for you. Uh, yep. I have. The cause has to be right. There has to be a compelling national interest, and the cost has to be proportionate to the gain. Uh, and we have to have the available resources to do it. Uh, and what were you going to add? There's another critical element to this, and this is why our response to Ukraine, and, and, and again, I said this in our previous podcast, I think historians are going to be debating this for years about whether pre-intervention or post-intervention would be more effective against a person like Vladimir Putin. And I, I, and I differentiate, by the way, between Vladimir Putin and his expansionistic desires and the general Russian people. I know because of having worked with DHL for five years, I have many colleagues, former colleagues who are Russian. And I know the sentiment over there. These guys aren't out looking for world domination. These average citizens over there, they just want to earn a decent living. They want to make money. They want to live comfortably. They want what most other European countries want, which is peace and expansion, but not expansion of turf expansion of economics. And Russia never really did that. I think this is really more Vladimir Putin and him consolidating power and his expansionistic vision of the world than it is about the average Russian citizen. I say that just as somebody who has had many Russian colleagues and I have that perspective. But here's that other element that I think if you send this to the federal government, you got to put this in there. Coalition building matters. We were in, even though there were those who debated that the invasion of Kuwait and our response against Iraq was about oil. It was a coalition, a coalition that George H.W. Bush built around the notion of democracy, or well, democracy, sovereign, sovereign country, which is one of the topics you brought there. Kuwait was invaded. We pushed back. And now, candidly, we did it because we wanted to stabilize Middle Eastern oil. We if had fell, a compelling national interest. In part, we had a compelling that national interest. That interest was part as of the did economic. the whole world. Yeah. As did the whole world, and that's why that coalition worked. We now have a coalition going against Russia, and you look at the pain that's being inflicted. It is going to be severe. Now we don't know what that's going to mean. Putin will do back, but we have a coalition. When we went into Iraq. We went into it alone. We had a couple of partners. We didn't have 30 countries. We didn't have any of the Middle East. We went into it alone. And this is the problem. And this is where I think of uh, the other list that you gave, that would be the other piece. Where's your coalition? And you build coalitions by building them around concepts and ideals that they get, they can grip, grab a hold of. Europe is about expanding democracy at this point. That's why we've got a coalition. They are protecting themselves. They don't want to see another uh, former Soviet satellite country fall, because if they fall, who falls next? And I, I think that uh, the economic interest is it's it's unfortunate, you know, to have to say that that's a piece of it. But the fact is that there is a correlation between prosperity and peace and stability. That so it's it's okay and also just the um, concession to the fact that resources are limited. You can't you can't be. I would actually like us to be the world's police officer. I am a neocon. I am sort of an interventionist. However, I recognize that we can't do that, 
ad infinitum. We can't do that everywhere. And I'm a lover, not a fighter, man. So we, so we have to um, limit engagement to those places where we have some kind of interest and ability to help. And we could delve into this issue ad infinitum. That's a good phrase, and I think I'm going to use it a lot more. Um, so, Actually, this is a good. This is another good place for a break. Okay, because we do have another. We do have another segment coming up. Uh, but uh, yeah. Okay. And again, we'll weird, up. Andy. We're actually kind of on similar turf here again. Why are we not debating more? I don't know. Anyway, uh, nothing brings right. people together like a good war. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right there. Sad to say, I uh, I laugh, but that's kind of a gallows humor laugh. Uh, anyway, thanks for hanging in here with us, folks. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes, and uh, we will uh, hit this last segment with some quick hit questions. Stick with us. It's our final segment. We're going to uh, ask a couple of easy questions for Steve to figure <laughs> out and uh, tell us how the world should work or how it will work and make some <clears throat> predictions. You ready, Steve? Absolutely. Let's make it like uh, Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. Big softballs. Big softballs. All right. Uh, Donald Trump, very quickly after the invasion of Ukraine, Donald Trump said that this never would have happened if he were still president. And it is, of course, it is not surprising that he would say something like that because he's a lot of character. No, he understands that uh, he knew how to manage the world so that nothing bad ever happened. I think that's the way it went under his uh, presidency. <laughs> what is surprising is that according to a poll from the Harvard Center for American Political Studies, 62% of Americans agree with him. 62% of Americans think also think that the invasion of Ukraine would not have happened if Trump were president. Uh, do we agree with that statement, and why? Um, well, shockingly, I don't think an invasion of Ukraine would have happened this way under Donald Trump, and here's why. Because Donald Trump would have destroyed job? me. What's that? Because he would have done a great job. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump would have destroyed NATO, would have um, fractured all of his... Uh, relationships with every European democracy, would have called people names, would have been petty, would have tweeted things out that would have given his generals all kinds of agita that they wouldn't have heard from him before it hit the tweet sphere, uh, would have changed direction six times, would have been in love with Kim Jong-un, would have been in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin. Bottom line, it wouldn't have happened because he would have been the next big complicit traitor to democracy. Ooh. Ooh, did I say that out yeah, loud? My inner point, monologue yeah. is slipping. <laughs> um, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Donald Trump is about Donald Trump and nothing else. Whatever aggrandizes him, makes him look good, makes him wonderful. He's going to say it. The reality is, yes, 
Vladimir Putin was going to expand into Ukraine. And he was getting away with it by weakening Ukraine through that bogus, all of those bogus talking points, distractionizing, going to Hunter Biden, which was the new but her emails. There goes my opinion of the day. Um, and I think that had Donald Trump been there, he would have continued the the chaos and the just ridiculous, relentless litany of regurgitation of Kremlin talking points. And Ukraine would have fallen and Ukraine might not have fallen with as much bloodshed, to be candid. Maybe, you know, all of the weakening and the withholding of aid and the, you know, the the. Uh, if you give me dirt, I'll give you 400 million, all that stuff. If he had done all that and it would have weakened Ukraine to a point where they would have looked inside and said, we can't endure this. But what happened instead <clears throat> was Ukraine started to see a tide change. They started to see a sea change in NATO's willingness to stand up, in the European Union's willingness to stand up in their eagerness to bring Ukraine in, in their collective recognition of Vladimir Putin's uh, interventionism. And I think it gave them the will to fight. It gave them the, the hope that although it would be a bloody battle, it might be a battle that they had partners in. Um, now, history will change, history will write where that goes. But I think that the answer is, it would have been, it would have been a different situation, it probably would have been an annexation with some skirmishes. And on that, you can make the judgment whether that would have been better or not. I think sometimes you just have to be ready to fight and you just have to be ready to fight hard for freedom and democracy. So your answer is that's technically accurate. They would not have invaded because they wouldn't have needed to. They wouldn't have invaded because everything would have been so weak around them that Vladimir Putin would have just marched right in. Okay. And as it stands right now, what he walked into, he didn't realize how quickly Biden was going to be rebuilding a coalition. And by the way, uh, say what you will about Biden being old, being slow, being ineffective on so many things. And frankly, I think all of those things are accurate. There's one, th there's two things that Biden has that Trump never had. One is Biden actually cares about people. Trump portrays that he cares about people, but it's a very transactional portrayal. You love Trump, you get Trump. You hate Trump, you get tweets. You're getting a little personal here. Well, it's 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 his pattern, and I think you can you could show it. But Biden, I think for all of his flaws, there's one thing you can say about him is that when he weeps, it's from the heart. And you've seen that. The other thing is he is, he tries, although he's not been particularly effective at it with the Senate, he tries to build coalition. And I think that what went on in Europe with their strategic leaking and, and not even leaking, but outright press releasing of every Russian move long before Russia made it, showed the Europeans that they could count on the US as a partner in this. And I think that that made a huge difference. Okay, I uh, I am going to have a pretty different answer to this. Uh, Great. I uh, I also am going to say that I don't think uh, I don't think Putin would have invaded if Donald Trump were president for a very different reason. I think Donald Trump uh, just had a very unpredictable personality, and I think 
that there would have been some uh, healthy fear uh, that that Trump may very well have pulled the trigger on a large-scale military retaliation. I don't know that that would have been the wise decision, but I do think Putin believing that was a possibility might have made him pause. Now, I also think that what you've said about undermining NATO, I think Trump is guilty of that. Uh, I went back over some of the things that Trump said during his presidency and before his presidency as well, that NATO was an outdated alliance. And uh, he had all kinds of griping about NATO. There's even a, a lot of reports that he was considering trying to withdraw the United States from NATO at various times. Um, so that information coming out may very well have given Putin the impression that NATO was getting weaker. Uh, and so that might have emboldened uh, Putin to be more aggressive. Um, but if, so in other words, I, I think it sort of worked out perfectly for Putin to invade that Trump's being there in Putin's mind weakened NATO and then Trump got out and uh, and so there was no danger of Trump behaving aggressively and so that set up the perfect scenario for Putin to go ahead and invade. And I do think Biden generally has not handled this very badly. However, well, I think one big mistake he made was announcing that we would under no circumstances put boots on the ground in Ukraine. I think he should have left that unclear and it would have made Putin. Well, he was doing that for a reason. He was doing that for a reason. I, I won't say why, whether I think it was a smart move or a bad move. I think I understand why he did it. Um, I think Biden did that because he knew that if he did that after just pulling out of Afghanistan, it was going to look like he was going to get back into another 20 year war. And the American appetite for U.S. lives being lost in a conflict that, although they're pretty outraged about it right now, and there's enormous support for it right now, eh, yeah, that that Afghanistan situation is still far too fresh in people's memories to see uh, U.S. lives put on the line again for another nation that really doesn't mean a whole lot to us, other than the fact that it's a it's a stand for democracy. That's that is really, and, and by the way, um, yeah, I think this is one where we're going to actually disagree. I think, I think that, uh, Donald Trump's, um, <sighs> Donald Trump parroted so many false talking points on Ukraine and so just left them out to twist in the wind, holding up military aid to get dirt on Hunter Biden, pretty cynical, pretty cynical. Um, and it just goes to the fact that, that they're back to, back to what you were saying, American intervention has to be done for the right reasons. And I think in this case, um, if, if he had been there, I no, I don't think, but anyway, but now we've got other topics to talk about. Okay. Uh, so Russia is running out of supplies and taking heavy losses. So they've asked China 
for help. Will China help? And how will this affect things in Ukraine? You know, Mitt Romney famously said in, I think it was 2012, that the number one global threat was Russia. And I semi-agreed with him at the time. Having been to China now in 2017, more recently than that, um, China is the big, biggest threat. It is the bigger threat. Um, Xi Jinping, what are we going to do to him? Are we going to bomb China if he helps Russia? Are we going to blockade China? We can't even get chips for the 2004 Broncos that are sitting outside the uh, Detroit manufacturing facility in, in an empty lot. I, well, correction, the lot's not empty. There's 2004 Broncos sitting out there waiting for chips from where? Say it with me, China. Um, we have a situation where Xi Jinping can do whatever he wants, and we can't do a thing. We can throw some sanctions. We're not going to militarily go ever. We already got Taiwan that we've got to figure out what to do with. So, no, I think, um, is it possible that China stays out of it? Yeah, maybe, because then they got to be up against the EU and maybe U.S. builds another coalition. But think about this. China has something the U.S. has abdicated in the last 50 years, Africa. All over Africa, China is building cities within cities. And we're talking about big cities within cities that are economic powerhouses. They are buying up African real estate resources at enormous pace. China has a foothold now in two continents, and we do not anymore. So frankly, I think that uh, it is entirely possible that Xi Jinping places his bet on Putin because at least Putin's a partner when he's under pressure from elsewhere, but really he could do whatever he wants and he's going to get away with it and we're not going to make a dent in it. We so, are going to take the hit. So you think China does in fact bail out Russia? And there's maybe no not directly, but I think it's certainly possible that they slip it through. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's entirely slide, plausible. On the slide, they send them some supplies and your your reasoning is basically because they can, which I, well, I guess. And one other thing I should mention, their reasoning is also oil. China is expanding at a rate that they cannot produce enough domestic oil to fulfill. Russia is a valuable partner in that. So if the entire world is standing against Russia and then the entire world is embargoing Russian oil, it is an opportunity for China to come in, bargain with that, with Putin and get oil. And it helps to drive down the prices in China and makes she look like a genius. So uh, you're, you're killing me, dude, because <laughs> I was going to go the other way. But you're making a fairly compelling argument because um, it, it, it looks to yes. me it looks to me that Russia is a sinking ship on this. Uh, every military analysis says that they're running out of manpower, they're running out of equipment, they're facing growing internal dissent, uh, they're facing an increasingly united world community, Putin may be losing his marbles a little bit. All of that seems to indicate this is a sinking ship. Why would China get involved? Now, I do think China earlier on agreed to kind of 
sit back and watch and you know they sort of coordinated the whole thing earlier on but i think i my thought was the the smart play for china right now was to throw his throw its hands up and say we had no idea that russia was going to do that you know wait and just <laughs> play dumb um what but, russia invaded when did that happen yeah well, how terrible how could they do such a thing we had no idea even though they were such right, nice guys even though it was just the day after our olympics ended Love it was the a borscht. total coincidence um, but, uh, because that would be bad. I mean, that would be very bad. I think without China's help, this invasion runs out of steam in pretty short order. But if you get the economic power of China behind it, supplying Russia, then uh, this can go on for a while. Well, the one thing China won't do, I can guarantee you, China will not give them troops. Okay. China will not give them troops. Well, they gave they weapons. Bargain. They will, they, they may bargain for weapons. They may bargain for, uh, assets. They may bargain for fuel, but I doubt that. But they will definitely not put boots on the ground. They will be like the U.S., standing at a distance and participating gently. That's no good at all. Okay. Um, that I, sorry, I really hope you're sorry wrong. Sorry to bust your that. bubble there, bud. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, getting back to Putin losing his marbles a little bit uh, in the face of increasing unrest in Russia, Putin yesterday announced that, quote, the Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and a more wretched den of scum and villainy. No, he didn't say that. Uh, sorry. Distinguish <laughs> true patriots from scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouths. I am convinced that such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country, our solidarity, cohesion, and readiness to respond to any challenges. In other words, he said, the beatings will continue until morale improves. So it sounds like he's getting ready for some Stalin-esque purges i i didn't think he was gonna go this direction uh it, assuming he's getting ready to send people off to siberia or to, into prison or to just make people disappear is that gonna work this russia is not the russia before the fall of the wall this russia is not north korea this russia is not china you go to north korea you have complete and total control over every single member of the populace. You have fear drilled into them. If you've never read the book, The Girl with Seven Names, you really need to get that because it's an eye-opening look into uh, this, this girl, and I'm going to forget her name after I just hawk the book, uh, who had escaped Korea young and brought the stories of what was going on inside that country out to the rest of the world. It's total domination. It's total oppression. You are trained from the earliest day that to snitch, and not just snitch, but to make things up in snitching on your family, on your teachers, on anybody who doesn't think and act the same. All right, let's take that to China. China has a very oppressive kind of a state going there, and you have Xi Jinping sitting at the top and you have people going off to prison camps and you have suppression of dissent. But what China has done is it has created an economy that is keeping people placated. 
the large majority of people are doing better because of the manufacturing economy, before, because of all the international finance. You look at any major Chinese, Chinese city, they are mammoth. We are a puny, puny pimple on the butt of China. When you look at, uh, if you look at New York, our largest city is like number 20 in China. So China has built this, this very, uh, now, by the way, China has its own mess, has all kinds of systemic issues. I give you those two examples. Russia, by, by contrast, has the fall of communism and the fall of the, the Soviet Union. And then you have people living under a relative span of chaotic freedom where the oligarchs are finding their footwork or finding their feet and they're they're starting to consolidate their own power they're making a ton of money moscow becomes this center of commerce and you start to see all of these affluent shops pop up and you see this level of affluence that russia never experienced before and people start to get the taste of that and through boris yeltsin you have freedom to some degree of new press, and you have other things going on that, that give people the sense and taste that they can fight back. Now you have Vladimir Putin coming back and he's imposing his will. Here's the thing he has going for him. If you take a look at the state TV control, they've just driven all of the last independent news outlets out of the country. They have threatened to put everybody in jail if they uh, breach this law. Uh, I'm going to forget what the name of the law is, the one it basically says, you say anything negative, you're, uh, you're an enemy of the state. He has the equivalent. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take a shot at a certain news network. Vladimir Putin has patterned his state media on a certain US network. Um, and by the way, really effectively, it's almost like he read a certain Australian media mogul's playbook on how to create state media. Here's the kicker. So you have a certain US talk show host in the evening hours on said network now being promoted as the prime talking point head on Russian state TV. The people in Russia, and, and the BBC had an article about this uh, on their website uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and I'll find it and I'll send it to you. It was basically a picture of what life is like in Russia under that state TV. 80 some odd percent of the people love state TV because it has become glitzy and glamorous, engaging, and they're doing a great job of making it seem, and they say this over and over on it, like everything is fake news except what they tell you. So Putin has created an economic collapse Putin is killing Russian soldiers indiscriminately by going on this expansionistic uh, foray. And on state media, they are poo-pooing and playing, downplaying everything. They're saying that the Ukrainians are bombing their own buildings. It doesn't make sense. Well, who would do that? They're, they're downplaying the, uh, the loss of soldiers. They have protesters now streaking into, well, not streaking naked, but running into the, the studio with a sign saying, no war. Is this enough to keep him in power? Is this enough for him to hold power and beat these people back and crush them? I don't know, but I got to tell you, 
if there's one thing I learned after 17 years in advertising, if you've got the means of communicating a slick message to an undereducated populace, they're going to buy anything. And so this is what's tricky about Russia. They lack that, that affluence and that middle expanding middle class that you see in China. They lack the complete and total domination of the populace that you see in North Korea. And yet they have capitalized on that one thing that is so valuable, which is making people believe something that is not true. It's a long way around saying, guy could be around a while. He could collapse tomorrow. It's all up in the air. I, uh, man, you're not giving me a lot of good news. Um, <laughs> I, I think that. Sorry about that. I yeah. I mean, I thought it was pretty clear that it's not going to work. That it was much easier. I mean, you're making again a pretty decent case for how to control the media in the modern age, that it's just different than what Stalin had mm -hmm. to do in the 40s. Um, my argument is going to be that it's impossible at this point because of the interconnected nature of, of media with the rest of the world. There's just no way to, to definitively keep all other voices from coming in. Now, you're you gave the example of it because it sounds like in order to do what he wants to do, he's going to have to turn his country into a giant version of North Korea, basically. So they're going to be completely or economically. China. Well, they can't. Or because China. They, well, they're not going to have the economic prosperity of China. Correct. Because they're going to be economically isolated, just like North Korea. So, I mean, Correct. as you've pointed out, China is a little more placated because it's possible to live a decent life. There's a there's a contented, a fat and happy middle class in China, um, whereas North Korea generally suffers grinding poverty. Right, poverty is sort of the norm, and I think the effect of these sanctions are going to throw most of Russia into poverty. And isn't Russia just too stinking big to turn it into a police state? Like, well, now it is. It is now it is. Uh, but here's the thing: you you said one thing, and just uh, from a technological perspective, this is the super important point here. Uh, again, in twenty, this is 2017 when I was in China. I could not get news on any internet feed, except if I used a VPN to get past the Great Wall of China, the Great Firewall of China. Okay. Russia is deploying similar technology. They are employing a heavy filtering. And so if you are in Russia and you do not already have access to some other mechanism to get media in, you may not be able to get media past the, the firewall and the censorship. So controlling media in today's world is so easy for any country, any country. You can simply turn off the spigot at the, at the border. Uh, the internet gives you that ability and uh, China does it brilliantly and it wouldn't take much for Russia to get to that level. North Korea certainly does it. They don't have, you know, they, they don't have a ton of activity, but they do have a very heavy presence in cyber espionage. And we, you know, in my job, we deal with that all the time where those guys can come after you and it's a nation state attack. 
Russia is the same way. Russia has capitalized on nation state attacks and they go after the media outside their country. So they target those sources. But by the way, I've just been noticing here, we've been flying by on our time and I think we still have something to, I think you still want to get out of here with a positive uh, yes. note. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, despite your efforts of telling us that uh, everything's not going to work out. Um, well, I know now I feel like a, bad Christian. I actually looked up, um, I thought you were wrong. I thought New York, man, I'm so out of date. I thought New York was one of the largest cities in the world. New York is the 45th largest city in the world. Yeah. I and thought it was a lot higher. not even like, like I said, I don't think it even tops, cracks the top 10 in China. No, I don't think it does. Mexico it, City's got like 20 million. Yeah. Mexico City is the sixth largest, 22 million. The largest is Tokyo. Yeah, Italy, Shanghai. Okay, I'm really going tangential here. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have to listen to this information and process all of this uh, with an eternal perspective, as difficult as that may be. Uh, Matthew 24, 6 says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Um, that is very difficult. Um, but the reality is that uh, the Bible and the history books both tell us that wars happen, and wars and wars will continue to happen, and we shouldn't be surprised when they do. Uh, what should be surprising, in fact, is that in our area of the world, meaning Europe and the Western Hemisphere, uh, it's been 80 years since a conflict like this affected us, and uh, that is an unusually long period of relative peace and prosperity. So that's actually kind of surprising, the fact that we've had, for the most part, peace and security for so long. Other areas of the world have not been so lucky during that time. It can help to not become uh, fearful over this, just to recognize that uh, we are a planet full of human beings who are flawed and sinful, and uh, we have always had wars. Every generation has had its challenges, and uh, we have actually been relatively lucky that uh, we haven't had uh, something like this. And at this point, I mean, America is still not even directly involved. Let's hope that it, it can manage to stay that way. Um, I don't know. I'm not a pastor. I think I can... I can think you I can, kind of hand it off to the uh, aspiring pastor? One of these days, I would like to go a little further in uh, ministry studies. But Steve, you got farther than I did. What, what do you have to say that can uh, help us with this? I think as, as we read this verse, and as we think of it in context of what's going on in the world around us, to your point, Andy, wars are nothing new. Wars have been around since time immemorial. And we always live in the moment. We are finite creatures. We have a lifespan that lasts, what, at most 100? Maybe you live in some area of Russia where they eat yogurt and you live to 120. But what ultimately happens is that we do all go the way of dust and die. But we have an opportunity in this world to do our part to make it better, to live for Christ, to reach out to people. And when there are wars and rumors of wars, Give them the confidence and the assurance of knowing that this is temporary, that there is an eternity ahead, that everyone has that opportunity to take it, and that no matter how bad things may look and get in this moment, there is something better just, 
just beyond the horizon. Let's do what we can to help in this moment to bring comfort, especially to those around us around us who have relatives in Ukraine who are, who are witness to this, and not just in Ukraine, but in so many other areas of the world. We forget about what's going on in Haiti right now, which is a complete disaster, which is an utter travesty uh, down there. And we, we, we forget what still goes on in some areas of Africa, in some areas of South America, where you go to the slums around Rio and, and you just see the abject poverty. There are people suffering and we can do our part. Those of us who have access and means to do it, to maybe alleviate one person's suffering and give them the hope of knowing that no matter how bad it may sound, there is, there is a future. There is a brighter future. There is an opportunity to live beyond the horizon. So here's hoping we all do our part to share the message of Christ, to share the message of the gospel, and to, in these times, lift people up and give them hope. Amen. Sounds good, Steve. Uh, maybe uh, maybe next time I'll learn how to uh, give such a nice closing. I'm going to edit out this comment, probably. All right. Um <laughs> Good night, everyone. Hey, folks. Good night. Thanks for being with us. God bless. Bye.